Father God, we come before you this afternoon. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity and, and the privilege and the time to gather as a church to hear from you, and particularly as we have been doing these past weeks, to hear from Christ, to hear the stories and the teachings of your Son, so that we might know about your kingdom and ultimately know about you. And we pray, God, that this afternoon as we um, come before your word, that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts to receive your truth. For our good and your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with all of you this afternoon. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 16. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. And if you are new, haven't had a chance to meet uh, the pastors, we'd love a chance to meet you in person and get to know you a little bit better. You can turn your Bibles to Luke, chapter 16. And while you do that, uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you found yourself unprepared? where you found yourself just completely not ready for what was to come. Um, My kids happen to have a copy of the book um, Aesop's Fables lying out on the couch this week, and I was reading through it, and I found a story in there that kind of pertains to that idea. And and you may remember the story. It's pretty popular. It's the story of the grasshopper and the ants. Now, I'll just tell you the story. Um, Just for your information, Aesop has very bad textual evidence, so we don't know what the actual original story said. Um, but there are many versions. I'll give you mine. One day in the winter, some ants were um, working hard, and they were pulling along a piece of corn that they had stored up in the summertime to prepare for the winter because there would be no food in the winter. And so they had prepared all this corn, and they were taking a big piece of corn out into the sunshine to kind of dry it out so they could enjoy a meal. And as they were busy at work, a grasshopper appeared. And this grasshopper, she was starving, and she begged the ants for a bite of some corn to eat. Now, the ants took a pause from their work, and they asked the grasshopper the obvious question, which is, why don't you have any food for yourself? This isn't your first winter. Why didn't you store up any food in the summer in preparation for the winter months? And the grasshopper replied immediately with the honest answer. She said, I didn't have any time to store up food because I was so busy singing, or in some versions, playing my fiddle, that before I knew it, the winter was here. Have you ever found yourself unprepared, like the grasshopper? You're so busy doing whatever that you weren't ready for what you knew was coming. We've been in a series of summer called Stories That Teach. We've been going through the parables of Jesus from the book of Luke. And in many ways, those, those fables, right, those Aesop's fables, they're parables too. They're analogies, they're stories that have these animals that are supposed to help us kind of understand these bigger ideas. Because you, you see ants, and they're always apparently working, right? Ants never look like they're taking a break. They're always walking, pulling something, doing something, headed somewhere. But you hear these grasshoppers or crickets at night, and all they seem to be doing is making that noise that you just wish you could stop. And so you understand that, that there's an importance, You can take these ideas and you can think about this story and understand that there is a reason to prepare for the future. And those who work hard for the future will be better prepared. And that idea is what leads to the parable that we'll be studying today from Jesus. In Luke chapter 16, we're going to look at this parable of the dishonest manager. And what we're going to see is that the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been giving us, Through all these parables, all these stories, the knowledge he's been giving us is not simply meant to pique our interest, but to help us live and prepare for eternity. So let's get right into it. Luke chapter 16, the parable of the dishonest manager. 
We are not going to read it all at first. We're going to read it in parts. Uh, We're going to go through the parable in four parts, starting first with the problem. Beginning in verse 1. He, that's Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him to himself and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now, hopefully, if you've been with us for a while, by this point in our series, you're kind of familiar with the way these parables work. Jesus tells an everyday story with nameless individuals who are going to get involved in something that we can all understand in the real world so that we can get the lesson. This time, there's a rich man and a manager. Now, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to all these stories, but did you notice how often the stories Jesus tells have to do with riches? There's always like a rich guy or a wealthy person, a big party, an inheritance. There's always something about money in these stories. It's almost as if he knows that our ears perk up when we hear about someone who has what most of us really want. We're going to talk more about that later, I promise. But there's this rich man who had a manager, and accusations were brought to him that this manager was wasting his possessions. Now, this is, of course, bad news. Um, I don't know if any of you run a small business here or run a business, but if you do, you understand how hard it is to find a good manager. My parents, they owned an auto shop when I was growing up, and my dad was always trying to find a manager so that we could take vacations um, and not be there every day. And I remember there were so many managers who would start and then stop a week or so later because they just didn't want to have the responsibility of the business. And the only reason you hire a manager is to make your life easier as an owner, right? If the manager is going to do a worse job than you are, give you more work, there's no point in having a manager. And this manager, it turns out, is wasting the owner's possessions. So the rich man, the master, he calls the manager to him and he tells him that he's going to be fired. Now, before we go any further, we need a little bit of context here. Because even though you may be a manager or you may own a business and understand how this works, it was a little bit different in ancient times. In those days, a rich man um, was someone who owned a lot of land, right? Because they weren't really doing like Fortune 500 companies and stuff like that. If you were going to be rich, you had to own a lot of land and have a lot of resources in that physical way. And most people of significant wealth would not be able to manage all of that on their own. So they would hire people to take care of different parts of the estate, There would be managers who would take care of the finances, of of the the produce, of whatever. Now, managing the wealth of a rich man can mean a lot of things. But if you read this passage in the context, it seems like this manager was someone who dealt with lending and borrowing. He's someone who took care of the financial accounts that were managed. Now, another thing you have to know from the context to understand this story is that in light of the fact that this rich man would own a lot of land and hire a bunch of managers, it was very likely that these managers lived with him. Not necessarily in the same house. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but they lived on the estate. They were part of the estate because they needed to be there hands-on with the stuff they were managing. And so the owner, he tells the manager to turn in the account of his management. In other words, turn over the ledger, turn over the book that has all of the documents about who owes me what according to the accounts you have managed so I can still get back all that even when you are fired. And this leads us to the real problem of the passage. It's a problem for the rich man, but more specifically a problem for the manager who is the main person in this parable. And the problem he faces is a problem that I think is eminently relevant to us at all times and all places. It's the problem of losing a job. 
Have any of you ever lost a job before? You don't have to raise your hand. I actually have lost a job before. I know, surprise, how could that happen to me? It's a hard thing to go through. Do you remember what you did? Do you remember what you started to feel when you lost that job and what started to happen inside of you? Do you remember the sort of fire maybe that it lit under you? Or perhaps you remember more clearly the sense of dread that came over you, anxiety for the future, what you were going to do to provide for yourself and your family. Even if you never lost a job, Jesus tells us why it's a problem for this man in particular. Look at verse 3. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. This manager sees the writing on the wall, and it's a problem because he really can't do much besides manage. Right? It's kind of like that old saying, right? Those who cannot do, teach. <laughs> Those who can't do, manage. Right? He says, I, I can't, I can manage the workers, but I can't dig. I, I can't, I don't have the physical capability to be out there. And I think that often when I watch the guys doing the roofs lately in Texas, I'm like, there is no way. I would just die if I were doing a roof in 110 degree heat. He's not strong enough to dig, to do manual labor. And he says, I'm ashamed to beg. I don't want to become a beggar. I don't want to become someone who is on the street, homeless. But there is a silver lining. And you can see it in the parable. The master hasn't fired him immediately. He has told him that he will turn in the account of his management, and then he will no longer be the manager. There's a little bit of time left to do something about the impending end of life as he knows it. And so my second question for you, whether you have lost a job or not, is what would you do if you knew you were going to lose your job in one or two days? What would you do with the time you had left? Now, I I know a lot of you here, so I imagine a lot of you would just call in sick for the last two days. Maybe you're particularly vindictive. You go about erasing all of your work or messing up your files or something or corrupting the server Hopefully you win it. Okay, that's a bad idea. But I think most of you, like this man, would see an opportunity to go about preparing yourself for what's to come. Right? Maybe downloading the contacts off of your phone that was given to you by the business so that you would have some way to contact people in the future. Maybe preparing your resume a little bit better, going through the the job descriptions that you could have a record of all the things you had done to prepare yourself for what's to come. And this is what leads us to verse 4, where we see that this manager doesn't just do nothing. Instead, he comes up with a plan, which is point two to this parable and the sermon, the plan. Look at verse 4 with me. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now, I've been thinking about this parable a lot. I, I've been thinking about it for the last couple of weeks, um, and, I, and I've been writing about it, and I've been dreaming about it. And sometimes when I dream about it, I, I think of it kind of like a, a movie, like a heist movie. You know, he has this plan, and there's these steps that he's going to take to make sure everything goes according to the plan. And the first step is to find friends. That's what he says. I'm going to make sure I find myself some friends. There's this book that my dad gave me when I graduated college called What Color Is Your Parachute? It's a book about making sure that you know people to prepare for the future. Instead of just sending out resumes, finding people who have the authority to hire you. This is kind of what's going on in the manager's head. He goes through his, his ledger of debts and he gets a meeting with every one of the people on it because he wants to find some quick friends to be ready for what's to come. And so verse 5, we see the next step, which is not just find friends, but make them like you 
even more. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Do you guys understand what's going on? You understand what he's doing here? Uh, people have had different interpretations of this parable, but the traditional, most straightforward interpretation of this story is that the guy is cooking the books. Right, we got a lot of accountants here. This is what is happening. There is a record he has of how much is owed by each debtor, and they also have their receipt of how much is owed so that it matches up in the end, right? That makes sense. And so he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find these guys, and we're going to make sure that we lower the amount on my ledger and theirs. I'm going to do something that is wrong, but that they're going to feel good about. So he takes the debt and he cuts them a deal. Now, there's no doubt that what he's doing here is dishonest. But for those who are the recipients of his action, it's a no-brainer. Maybe you have a huge mortgage. Maybe you have student debt. Can you imagine if someone said, I have the ability to just wipe away half that with a signature? How would you feel about it? Would you be angry at them? Would you be appalled? Or would you be kind of excited that this person was going to help you out in this way? Now, a hundred measures of oil in this passage, it sounds like nothing until you recognize what a measure was. This would be about 900 gallons of olive oil, which would be worth about three years of pay for a Roman soldier. So, so it's about $200,000 owed if we're just kind of giving an average. A hundred measures of wheat would be similar. These are very large, very expensive debts for him to wipe away 50% or 20% was a huge boon to the debtors. The plan the manager comes up with is brilliant. He's building a parachute. He's making friends. He's making sure they like him so that when the end comes in just a few days, he won't be out on the street. He won't be without anyone to care for him. He's going to have somewhere to go instead. It's smart, but it's also devious because it's not at all what the master would want him to do, right? This guy is abusing his position one last time. And it's extremely ironic that the manager who was accused of wasting possessions in his last act wastes even more possessions to make sure that he's taken care of. But that's probably, I think, why Jesus said it this way. It's meant to make us think, okay, why is Jesus giving us this story? Why is he telling a story about this dishonest, heist-like plan? And if you're asking that question, it leads us directly to the third point in this sermon, the rebuke. Read verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That should be surprising to us. It should surprise you. If you haven't read this story before and studied it, Jesus very clearly sets up this story about a dishonest bad guy. A guy who was accused of dishonesty and then just proved it by what he did. And yet, Jesus says he is commended. So so what gives? Is Jesus saying, be like this dishonest guy? Is he saying that, that you should be more and more dishonest to help yourself out? No, it's wrong. Jesus says right there, literally, he's a dishonest manager. But for some reason, when the master hears this, he commends him. He praises him. Why does Jesus say it like this, right? People throughout church history have been troubled, disturbed by it. Why would he talk about a bad guy with commendation? Here's what I think Jesus is getting at. You might not like it. You might know it was wrong. 
But you have to admit, it was clever. And at the end of the day, what the manager did made a whole lot of sense. And maybe was even, to some degree, impressive. Again, it's like a heist movie. We all know stealing is bad, right? We all know that you shouldn't steal people's money and crack into safes and banks. But when it's done well, it's kind of impressive. This manager is dishonest, but he has what the Bible says is shrewdness. The word shrewdness here, which Jesus used, is kind of a weird word for our modern day. It can be translated as wisdom or sensibility or prudence or insight. But if we want to understand what shrewdness is about, and that's going to be key to understanding this whole parable. If we want to understand shrewdness, I think that the best term for us to use is the word smarts with an N, an S at the end. Okay? You know what I mean? As in street smarts. Do you guys know about street smarts? Okay, there are such a thing as book smarts. Some people have a lot of book smarts. And some people have a lot of street smarts. And if you don't know what either of those are, you may be in possession of no smarts. Okay? That's just how the world works. Book smarts is knowing about things. But street smarts is knowing how to get things done. If you've been a teacher, you can appreciate this. I saw one example online of a test where the teacher asked, what or where was the Declaration of Independence signed? And the student, not knowing what to say, wrote, on the bottom. He may not be good at test taking, but he'll figure his way out in the world. But it's not just a witty or quick thing on your feet. See, street smarts is about practical knowledge. A person may not be the best at taking tests. They, they may be terrible at it, but they may be someone who knows how to get things done, who knows how to make money or knows how to influence people. A book smart person may have a degree from one of the best colleges, but a person with street smarts knows how to act in the interview so that that future employer isn't annoyed by them. A book smart person may have an understanding about the techniques of, of boxing or MMA fighting. A person with street smarts knows how to see and avoid a fight. You guys understand this? You know what I'm talking about. You know what Jesus is getting at? Book smarts is all about theory, but street smarts is real life, and that's what shrewdness is. It's not data, it's not facts, it's not just education, it's not Wikipedia, it's resourcefulness, it's smart, it's getting things done in the real world. And surprisingly, in this story, the master does not rebuke, but commends the dishonest manager because he has shown himself to be extremely shrewd, to have smarts. So where is the rebuke in this story? Well, it's actually immediately after. In the same verse, verse 8, Jesus said, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That's the rebuke. The rebuke in this parable is not for the guy who did a dishonest thing. It's for the sons of light listening to the story. If you look at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he takes the pointy end of this story and he shoves it right at their chest. The rebuke in this parable is not for the manager. It is for them. It is for us who claim to be sons of light. And can you imagine hearing this for the first time? Can you imagine being shocked and disturbed that Jesus would commend this person in the story for his shrewdness, but say that you are a fool? He says the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with this generation than the so-called sons of light. Now, who are the sons of this world? Literally, what it means is the sons of this age. 
Jesus is talking about people who only know about and care about this world. People who aren't thinking about the supernatural. People who are unspiritual. People who are just living their best lives now. And who are the sons of light? Well, this is a phrase that would have been used in the ancient world to speak of God's people. We understand that it's not that weird to us that we don't use that same terminology. The sons of light are people who supposedly know God and are close to God, think about God, are pleasing him. If I were to try to get the same feeling today, I'd probably say many unbelievers seem much more smart about their dealings with the world than Christians. It's a rebuke. Now, what exactly is Jesus rebuking? We need to understand here. Jesus is not commending dishonesty. But he is condemning hypocrisy. And Jesus is not commending greed, but he is condemning half-baked religion. And Jesus is not even commending street smarts itself. Instead, he is condemning a casual, cavalier attitude towards God, especially from those who claim to be all about him. Do you understand what Jesus is saying, you see, here's how the sons of the world are more shrewd than the sons of light. It's not because they are better at making money. It's not because they make better music or whatever or art. It's not because they, they, they are better at making their way in the world. It's because they are more consistent. They lie and they cheat and they manipulate to build up their pockets. But they're just doing what they said they were going to do. Right? The people in this world say money is what it's about. It's all about living a good life now. It's all about having the most toys and the most possessions and the most whatever, and they live that way. But what about the so-called sons of light? Well, well, we say we're all about heaven. We say we're all about God. We say it's not about how much you have, and yet we often look like we're living exactly the same way. Eternity, life after death, the kingdom which is to come, you can't take it with you. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Amen, amen. Christians say these things, so why is it that those who claim to know about them don't use our resources in a way that aligns with that claim? Why is it that if I claim to know for certain that my life will end but eternity awaits, that I still spend all my time investing and preparing for the things of this world, not the things that are eternal? Look at verse 9. What does Jesus say we are to do? And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. When he says that, he's just talking about worldly wealth. Okay? Something that is not eternal, not godly. It's just wealth. It's just here on earth. He says, if you claim to be a son of light and you want to live a, a smart, shrewd, purposeful life, then Jesus tells us what we should expect to be the case. Instead of being concerned about money and wealth and possessions here and now, those who claim to be sons of light should use our resources to make friends for eternity. Again, unrighteous wealth simply refers to the fact that money and wealth are worldly things. You can't take it with you. But what Jesus also has taught in this parable and elsewhere is that there is a way to invest in the true long term. There is a way to invest in things that will last. There is a way to invest in eternity. And that way is through using what God has given you to care for people. 
You see, one thing that the scriptures tell us will last forever is people. We are made in the image of God. It's amazing. It's it's an incredible fact, right? There, There are all these things that we can appreciate and enjoy about being human beings, but we're made in the image of God. God breathed the breath of life into Adam. We will live forever in eternity with him or separated from him because of our sins in hell. So then we ought to remember whenever we are tempted to forget that people are more important than our money. It's that simple, right? You You would all tell your kids that. You would all say that people are more important than our money. Just like the manager used his master's resources to prepare for his future, Jesus says that you can use the resources God has given you to care for the people God has put in your life so that in heaven, in eternity, in the kingdom to come, you will have used your unrighteous wealth for the good of eternal people. There was another parable that um, Kenny and Greg talked about, about this great banquet. You guys remember the, the great feast and everyone's kind of going there? Imagine going to this big party, going in and seeing all around you those people who God gave you the privilege to bless with the resources that he has given that's the picture Jesus is giving us. And, and it's incredible. It really is incredible. You know, we're not just going to go to heaven and forget what everything was like. We are going to remember things, okay? There's not just this immediate forgetfulness of the world. We won't have pain and sorrow and, and things like that anymore. But in the end, when you die and go to heaven, or in the end when God makes everything new, in both those places we will remember. And there will be people that we will know have blessed us and we have blessed. How much better of an investment is that than just the things of this world. In the old Christian church, there was a word that was often used that we just don't use anymore. And I think I understand why. It's kind of associated with um, empty religion and stuff like that. But, but it is a good term, okay? It's a term that many of you may have heard or read in an old book. It's almsgiving. Have you heard that before? Giving alms. And what it simply means is giving to the poor and needy, giving charity, giving food and money to people in need. Now, in his rebuke, Jesus shows that a shrewd son of light will do this. Now, this is hard, but just hear what the Bible has to say on this subject. Matthew 5, verse 42, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. Do not refuse them. Matthew 6, 3, he says, When you give to the poor, do it in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 1 Timothy 6, the Holy Spirit through Paul says that you must be generous and ready to share, and thus you will store up for yourself treasure for the future. Jesus told a rich young ruler who came to him, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And it's all over the Old Testament too. Proverbs nineteen seventeen says this, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. When Paul was going out to the churches and preaching the gospel and the apostles brought him to to account, they wanted to see if what he was doing was right. They said, you have our stamp of approval. But in Galatians 2.10, remember this one thing though, care for the poor. And yet, yet it seems that perhaps... At Zoe, 
as Christians, as Pastor Eric, I've become very book smart about such things. But I have no experience in doing them. If you want to use the time you have left to prepare for what is to come, Jesus says that you ought to be giving away what you have for the sake of others. Now, that's a huge loaded statement, and we'll get a little bit more into it. But let me just tell you one thing that Randy Alcorn, who has written much about eternity, has said. I think it's a wonderful quote. He says, Christians in our society habitually think and act as if there is no eternity. Then he goes on to say, we major in the momentary, but we minor in the momentous. We minor in the momentous. There is a momentous future to come for every Christian. We should be majoring in that, investing for that, looking forward to it. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's not saying be like the dishonest manager. He's not saying be like the sons of the world. He's saying be better. Use shrewdly the things of this world to invest in the things of the next, namely in people. And you don't have to be rich, okay, to understand this or for this to apply to you. There is an obsession that we can all have, even as Christians, with having the best and nicest things for ourselves. One person wants a a bigger retirement. Another person wants a nicer car. Another person wants a newer house. Another person wants a better vacation Just listen to the rebuke of Jesus and be wise. If God is truly the most important thing, if you are a son of God, if you are a son of light or a daughter of light, and you know his kingdom will come and last forever, then would you shrewdly start to act that way? And that leads us then finally to these last verses in the passage where we see the stewardship. The stewardship. Now, I know that this is um, not easy things to, to read or hear. Maybe seems impossible or radical or just crazy. Um, if that's the case, though, that's good. We're, we're in a good place because it's meant to be difficult to hear. We talked about how parables are meant to both um, illuminate and to conceal, right? We talked about how they both reveal and they also kind of uh, push people away. And you can kind of see how that happens, right? Because they're so extreme. Jesus, why does he say some of these things? It's only if you think that the craziest, most disrespectful, rebellious younger brother could come back to the father. It's only if you believe that can happen that you will even understand that any sinners can be saved. It's only if you're willing to give up all that you have to God that you're going to even be willing to give up a little. You have to be extreme. And Jesus is saying that you're either for God or against God. He pushes us to this place. And so if you feel like, man, this is crazy, that's good. Jesus doesn't just leave us with this story and rebuke. He ends this parable by telling us why giving to the poor, why not being concerned about our earthly riches is not crazy, but it is the only thing that makes sense. And the reason for that is stewardship. Let's look at verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The parables of Jesus often have to do with riches, rich people, money. And if you've wondered why, Jesus tells us here at the end of the parable, because at the end of the day, you cannot Serve God and money. It's not that God needs your money. Okay? 
It's not that you will somehow figure out how to get rid of the poor. The poor will always be with you, Jesus said. Instead, it's that if there is something that so frequently takes the place of God in our lives, it's our money and our riches. So Jesus is bringing us along a trajectory. He's giving us a movement of ideas. He goes from a story about cleverness and resourcefulness to a rebuke about being consistent and and shrewd with your money for heavenly things and for people. And then he finally brings us to a point where we understand that the reason all this matters is, of course, our relationship with God. Do you see it from the idea of simple shrewdness to the application of generosity to the principle of stewardship? Stewardship, according to Jesus, in these verses, it's the real lesson. This is so important. If you don't get stewardship, you'll never understand what the Bible says about money. You'll never understand what Jesus is saying. It's going to sound like the social gospel or a poverty gospel. I thought if you just give enough away, then you'll be holy. If you just have very little, then you'll be a more righteous person. That's not at all what the Bible says. I know a lot of people who are apparently generous, who are terrible stewards. It's not just about buying people coffees and meals and whatever big Christmas presents. You see, stewardship shows us that it's not about money at all. It's about God. It isn't simply that money and riches are unreliable, though they are. It's not just simply that people are more important than money, though they are. Jesus says in these verses that for those who understand the kingdom of God, we need to realize that God is the master of our riches. Our money is not ours. Our resources are not ours. Our possessions are not yours. We are simply stewards, managers who ought to be faithful and use it for the master. Look at these verses. Do you see it in the explanation? Jesus uses some of the same terms here to tie back to the parable. He talks about unrighteous wealth. Uh, He talks about being dishonest. He talks about using someone else's property. He is causing us to look back and think about this story again and and this strange story about the manager and realize that we are actually called to be managers of God's stuff. What God has given to us, he has called us to steward, to use our unrighteous, worldly resources in the way that he intends. There's a story about a dishonest manager, but we need to be honest and faithful. I speak to myself as much as I speak to any of you. Because it's easy, right? It's easy to say. I've read the books. I've, I've written the small group questions about generosity and living in light of eternity. It's easy to say these things, but not learn to live them. And so this parable forces us to take stock of our stewardship. Could it be that if I look at my own life, if I look at my credit card statement, if I look at my spending and giving, if I look at my subscriptions, that God would not judge me faithful? Does it appear, if you were to look at those things, that I think that I'm the owner, not the manager? I've talked about it before, but um, we live in Collin County, right? the wealthiest county in all of Texas, which means one of the wealthiest counties in the world. We live in a place where it's so easy to just, to just buy into it. We're swimming in the water of riches. It's easy to buy into the illusion, the lie, that with enough money, you'll have the life that really matters. With enough money, you could have more space, more tools, more people, more programs, more influence, more reach, more power, whatever. It's easy for us as a church to, to feel that way. And so we can't help but, but live as if whatever we have, we've got to cling to because it belongs to us. And we've got to use it for ourselves. 
But again, as Randy Alcorn has said, it is only by releasing our grip on our resources that we actually open up our hands to God. It's not ours. That house, not yours. That car, it's not yours. That paycheck, it's not yours. Jesus gave a story about this dishonest manager, but he spells out the lesson. He tells you that if you are a Christian, and now I know some of you are not, but if you are a Christian, you are God's servant, and he expects you to faithfully steward his possessions well. So let's be very practical here before we end. Let's talk about what stewardship means. Let's talk about spending and and saving and giving. It's clear from the Bible that God has given us money in order to meet our needs. Okay, That's one of the main reasons he gives us money is to fulfill the needs that we have, to take care of your food and your clothing and your shelter. But if you have enough, if you have enough to take care of those things, then you have a choice to make. With every dollar above that, you have a choice to make. What will you do with this unrighteous wealth? Maybe it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's pretty true, and it's how most of us live. When you have excess, you can choose to either spend it, save it, or give it. And this is, this is you know, if you are a college student here, you need to hear these things. They don't teach you, like, financial management for some reason in college. Um, but this is how the world works, and this is how you got to think. You can either... Spend it, use your worldly wealth to fulfill worldly desires and wants, right? You, you, can, you can do fun stuff, you can have lifestyle creep, you can buy a bigger car or a better house or better stuff or a nicer computer, whatever. You have enough to care for your basic needs, so, so you make filling those basic needs less basic and more high class, right? You can do that. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings of the Lord. Okay, I'm not saying you can't eat out, stuff like that. I'm just saying this is one of the options we have. It's not wrong. It's not sinful. But understand that it is worldly. It's using the things of this world for the things of this world. Second option is we can save. Right? You, you have more than you need, and so you can save now for later. You can save now to prepare in an emergency fund or investing for the future or saving for retirement. There's a lot of wisdom to this. The Bible tells us there's a lot of wisdom to saving when things are good to prepare for when things are not as good. And so you can do that. You can save your excess for when times will be tough, to not be a burden on those around you, but to be a blessing to them. The third option is to give. You can use your worldly wealth, as we've already talked about, to take care of people who are in need. The Bible says that giving to the needy, giving generously in some amazing, mysterious way, it is a risk-free investment into eternity that God expects us to make. And so you have a choice as a steward with every dollar beyond your basic needs to spend it, to save it, or to give it in ways that are consistent with who you are as a Christian and shrewd. Just for myself, this is hard. You know, I've thought about this a lot. Um, you know, I know that there's a stereotype that pastors are, like, poor, but the church takes care of us really well. You know, we have a good life. We're blessed to be here. And um, for myself, just next year, okay, my parents, they're going to bless our family with a Disney cruise, okay, which I know is a huge, big luxury. Okay, this is not something that, I, you know, someone in the third world is going to be like, oh, like, I need to do that one day too, right? That's, that's a basic need. No, this is a luxury. No one needs to go on a Disney cruise and get entertained by Mickey Mouse for a week. 
So how do we reconcile these things? Do I, do I have this guilt on me as I go? Do I, do I go enjoy the buffet and then tear my clothes and ashes at night? No, here's what I think. I think it may be as simple as realizing that if I'm blessed to have family that chooses to spend on my worldly wants, well, that means that now I can spend less on myself. I have more to give away what I would have spent on a vacation to someone in need. I have more to, to use in the way that's investing for eternity. It means that if I'm a person who has invested well and saved well, and I'm blessed to have it have panned out the way that I wanted, that the, the, the stock market went the right way, and I have more than enough, I now have the opportunity to save less, and to give more, to help a brother, a sister, and even a stranger. You know, at the risk of my parents listening to this sermon and cutting me out of the will, it's better to generously give to those in need for the Lord's sake than to make sure that your children are independently wealthy, never have to worry about anything in their life. The application is not the social gospel or poverty gospel, but stewardship, because the gospel tells us that we have been bought with a price, and so everything that we have belongs to the Lord, the Master. And, and I know it's hard. When I feel myself deciding that it's so hard that I'm just going to be inconsistent. I'm just going to live in a way where I, I give lip service to it, but I don't change anything. When I find myself tempted by that desire, which I think all of us can feel tempted by, I remind myself of the very next verse in this chapter. You can read it with me. Luke 16, 14. Look with me in your Bibles. Jesus tells this crazy story. He says, you cannot serve God and money. Just, it's hard. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Man, that's sharp. So remember the parable of the dishonest manager. This manager, this trickster, this conniving guy knew how to use what was going away in the short time he had to prepare for what was to come. And so it should be far more true of us who claim to know and receive and believe the secrets of the kingdom of heaven that we will use what we have been given by God for his eternal purposes. The missionary Jim Elliot once famously wrote before he gave his life, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Amen. Use what cannot last to serve the one who will reign forever. Every sort of experience, item, investment in this world can and will fail. But when you use your money as God's money, your unrighteous wealth can become eternal riches. And that's amazing. We're going to close here. I started this sermon by talking about the grasshopper and the ants, um, but I never finished the story. The ants asked the grasshopper, why didn't you prepare for the winter? And the grasshopper said, I was too busy singing, making music. Uh, I just forgot. I forgot to prepare for the winter. And do you know what the ants did? Well, there are a lot of like um, versions that have been whitewashed where they just share their meal with him. But in the original version, what the ants say is, well, grasshopper, if you sang all summer, then you can dance all winter. In other words, tough luck. This is your fault. You reap what you sow. And this seems to be how the world thinks, isn't it? You reap what you sow. Better luck tomorrow. Do better next time. You should have done it before it was too late. And maybe that's how you feel today, right? Jesus is simply saying, 
prepare or else. You better get this right or you're not going to be ready for eternity. But that's not really what it's all about at all. Jesus' parables are hard, yes, but they are never without hope. As I think about this fable and, and this parable, I'm more and more convinced of this. Jesus and Aesop were not saying the same thing. Okay, both stories talk about the need to be wise for the future. But Aesop, he's thinking in human ways. Okay, he's just this human philosopher. The world tells you that if you fail to prepare for the future, then you're going to get what you deserve. And that's just the way it is. I hope you can learn the lesson and do it. But the Bible actually tells us something far different. Because Jesus, he is a human, but he's God. And he's teaching us not from human ways, but according to God's ways. See, here's the difference. As Christians, as sons and daughters of light, we know in the gospel that we deserve punishment. That what we actually deserve is death. It is hell. It is separation from God. But we also know that because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, if we believe in him, we don't get what we deserve. We receive grace. And so instead of the parable being about getting what we deserve, this is what happens. The parable reveals that it is not by getting what we deserve that we find the, the, the motivation and grace we need to prepare for the future rightly. It's because we have not been given the punishment we deserve that we actually have the freedom to live in this way. We need to have our perspective reversed. We don't get saved because we steward well. Instead, because we are saved, we unlock the key to stewardship. And if this were simply about preparing for the future well, Anyone can learn to invest for a good ROI. Right? Anyone can learn how to be a financial planner. But it's only the one who has the eyes to see and the ears to hear who can faithfully steward his life for heaven. It's because Jesus paid the debt. Because he has wiped away our sins. Because he has forgiven us by grace that we can be free to steward. And we are managers, right? But really, we're more like those who had a huge debt that was wiped away. Because we know that everything we have is the possession of God, and that has been given to us freely, that we have the freedom then to, to just let go of clinging to it so tightly. In Christ, we find that the riches of the kingdom are unfathomably fathomably valuable. In Christ, we find security and eternity and true fellowship with God given to us freely by grace. In Christ, we know that while we were enemies of God, deserving of wrath and hell, we have been given God's undeserved favor and love. And when we understand that, when we understand that, we can respond in love to him. And when we love him, and when we are devoted to him, and when we know that he is the master, only then are we freed from the love of money. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that this afternoon you would help us to see our lives, not just our riches, but all of life as stewardship. And we know, Lord, in this one way in particular, with money and riches, it so easily grasps our hearts, so easily becomes what we live for. We treat money as our God because it practically is. And so, Lord, we repent of that. We know, Lord, that your, your word is full of warnings, but it's also full of hope. Uh, with the fact that our security and our hope and our joy and our riches are found in Christ, free us to use all unrighteous wealth and riches you have given us 
in a way that is wise and shrewd and ultimately for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.